0: Today happens to be the first of this year's Sutta Exploration Series, where we begin the year with Punna Sutta, from the Majjhima Nikaya, number 145, the advice to Venerable Punna Some consider this to be a unique sutta, even though it has a, an exact copy of itself in the Sangyutta Nikaya as well. Unique because it brings the practice of the path, Into a different, a high actually level of applicability as it relates to bringing the individual practice to blend in in a societal setting where we contribute all that the practice has given to oneself. There's a lot of forbearance, there's a lot of patience, and there's a lot of dhamma in there. So, in this sutta we come to meet the Venerable Punna, who comes to the Blessed One in search of a brief instruction, something that he could apply immediately. So that he could dedicate himself to meditation practice, as he goes into seclusion. The, well it is a carbon copy of the sutta that I mentioned in the Sangyutanikaya, that is, uh, in case you would like to go and look at it, it's uh, the Sangyutanikaya number 35.88, some list it as 84, I don't know why. A brief uh, introduction of uh, Venerable Punna's background uh, serves to highlight as to who we are going to be uh, discussing, their background. Venerable Punna, before he was a venerable, he, his family was involved in import and export a type of business. So they were merchants. And once he reaches manhood, and in those days it was anywhere from 16 years of age up until um, you know, the beginning part of it, of course, uh, 20, 25 years old, so one day he is on one of his journeys and he takes along with him his younger brother and he loads up his 500 ox carts full of material and merchandise. And he goes off to, um, in this case, to Savatthi, where Lord Buddha was. So in the commentaries, we see um, both in the Majjhima Nikaya, middle-length discourses commentaries, and the Sangyutta Nikaya, at the end of his day, I'm not sure what you know which part of the day, but uh, he sees a lot of people carrying flowers, gifts, um, incense, and they are just like crowds of people walking in line, and they're very jubilant. That catches his uh, captures his attention. So he asks some of the people. What's going on? Where where is everyone headed? What is happening? And they say, oh, we're going to meet uh, and to offer these at the feet of the Buddha. Now, um, when he hears that, the sound that that word makes, Buddha, reverberates and goes straight to his bone marrow, they say in the commentaries and um, he becomes overjoyed in just hearing the word the buddha something similar had happened i don't know if i've mentioned it to um, happened to Anatapindika when his brother-in-law mentions the word buddha and he asks him what did you say to his brother-in-law he says buddha He asks him three times because it moves him so deeply because of his connection to the past, in his past rather, to what the Buddha represented and specifically uh, the connection with the Dhamma. So something similar happens to Punna and he joins the assembly of people going to see lord buddha and the sangha and he listens to the dhamma talk and afterwards he approaches lord buddha and he says bante i would like to offer you and the sangha um, the morning meal for tomorrow so please uh, accept my invitation and lord buddha accepts it in silence and uh, the next day He goes with the Sangha to Punna's, um, wherever he was staying, and arranging all the food and and everything else. After Lord Buddha gives the Dhamma talk and they leave, Punna goes immediately back uh, to his bookkeeper, his accountant or treasurer in those days. And he uh, closes his accounts in a sense, from his side. And he says, these are the things that were sold in Savati. This is the inventory. And uh, he signs off on it. And he hands over the wealth that he possessed to his younger brother. And he heads off back to Savati's, Jetavana, <laughs> And he asks for ordination. So he becomes ordained. He's still relatively young. So, um, and once he becomes ordained, um, after he spent some time, um, he receives the uh, upajayas. Upajaya is the person who gives the ordination, the preceptor to the bhikkhu, in this case. And once he receives the uh, permission from his preceptor that he can leave, because he wanted to go off and and really dedicate himself to the practice as a bhikkhu. At that point is where the sutta begins, where he's approaching Lord Buddha and he says, Bhante, can I please get a brief teaching, brief dhamma that I can immediately apply and gain the benefits of the practice? So logistically, the sutta is divided into two parts. Um, one part is Lord Buddha giving instructions on how to reflect on the nature of suffering, how suffering comes about. And uh, it's done in such a pragmatic way as to uh, what I mean by that is how suffering comes to us. It just doesn't happen. Like it doesn't fall into our laps, as they say. But we have a contribution we make. In order for us to inculcate and to bring into our lives, into our living experience, this thing called dukkha or suffering. And uh, which Lord Buddha uh, brings it back to the delighting in or becoming exhilarated or excited by the objects of the sixth sense doors, whether it's the sights, sounds, etc. So, secondly, we have well. Yeah, so secondly, we have the uh, Venerable uh, Punna being asked whether he is able to withstand abuse, whether it's verbal, whether it's psychological, even one might say, definitely physical abuse. So again, uh, from aggressors. Uh, So... um, because we see how venerable Punna is planning on going back to his home country, Sunaparanta, where there is no dhamma and people are not nice there towards anyone practicing the dhamma. So Lord Buddha wants to examine and see his the quality of his mind and how determined is Punna to go back and withstand these things. So. As a wonderful, caring, compassionate teacher, he wants to make sure that before his student goes off, that he is based on good foundation. His understanding is based on a solid foundation of dhamma. So, um, without further ado, let us begin. So this is the Majjimanikaya number 145, Punova Sutta. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anātapindika at Jeta's Grove in the city of Savatthi. Then, when it was already evening, the Venerable Punna, having come out of his meditative seclusion, approached the Blessed One, paid his respect, and then sat to one side and said, Bhante, It would be good if the Blessed One would please teach me the Dhamma in brief. That way, once having listened to the words of the Tathagata, I will go and live alone, secluded and withdrawn. Dedicate myself with zeal as I diligently practice with strong resolution and precision. The arrow will never hit the target if it's not sharp enough if it is blunt, it will never get to its destination. And when we're talking about meditative practice, just like in any endeavor, maybe academically, maybe business-wise, whatever the setting, the intention has to be there and it has to be merged with the action, the the deliberation, the dedication, all these factors have to come to that point arrowhead. Without seclusion there is no advancement in this practice. At some point the person has to seclude themselves. But that's not enough because you can be secluded and you can have your mind be topsy-turvy all over the place. So we need to bring in more energy, zeal, effort, diligent practice all of these things must be uniting at that moment of seclusion where we're practicing not just the sitting practice but even later on when we are practicing contemplating on the teachings during the day especially as to as what we will we'll hear lord buddha say in regards to suffering and our involvement in bringing it about So this is where Lord Buddha responds. Well then, Punna, listen and pay close attention to what I shall say. The Blessed One replied, Yes, Lord. Punna, there are sights seen by the eyes that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by and cling to these sights, then excitement arises in his heart. Punna, I declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering. It's so succinct, it's so sharp, it's so well packaged, if you will. And we see. You, you don't get into, let's say, paticca samuppada or dependent uh, origination, any philosophical um, um, uh, premises being laid out, in a sense. It's very pragmatic. When you have delighted in, when you are cl- caught in the clutches of the six sense doors, that's it there's going to be suffering, sooner or later. That's what this statement is saying. Similarly, there are sounds heard by the ears that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by, and cling to these sounds, then excitement arises in his heart. I declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering. So now we're hearing it about in relation to sounds. Years ago, <laughs> when I was a layman, and I remember one particular incident where I, had, I was a layman as, and, and I had broken up with a girlfriend, and I was driving, and um, so I was heartbroken. And um, I wanted to hit the radio button or, you know, I just wanted to keep other things occupying my mind. And then I saw how the sound of the song or or the music even was triggering me all of a sudden, because I was practicing breath meditation at the time, just listening to my breath, but sometimes the tumultuous mind and all those uh, habitual patterns came in the sankharas and you would reach to the radio station and just like hit the power button in the car for the radio to come on. And I noticed how immediately that sense of calmness that was produced thanks to me staying with the breath was stolen because the mind went becoming excited. Why? Because the sound of the song or the music was similar to the ones that I used to listen to while I was in that relationship. So I'm sure you have similar, many, many stories like that where a sound triggers or a sight triggers. Well, if I didn't hit the radio button, the power off at that moment when I detected it, I was going to feel... More suffering. Why? Because it took me back to that state of brokenheartedness or, oh, how come it didn't work out, etc. All those stories. What is that? That's dukkha. Why? Because the mind became agitated. Why? Because I went into, I leaned into the song and what it represented. The chapters of novels that it opened up. Oh, it could have been this, or it was like this. Oh, it tasted like this. It sounded like all oh, these six sense doors. This is when they become our captor um, captors, and we become its captives, the prisoners to these six sense doors. Similarly, there are odors smelled by the nose that are liked, preferred, and desired that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by and cling to these odors, then excitement arises in his heart. Punna, I declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering. Similarly, there are flavors that are tasted by the tongue, that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by, and cling to these flavors, then excitement arises in his heart. Punna. I declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering. Now, sometimes we forget that the mind or the brain itself might look at, when it, when we process information, something like the word suffering or dukkha. Many times we have an image of suffering. Suffering could be experiencing an animal being butchered or a child in Africa starving somewhere in the desert. That's suffering. But it doesn't necessarily have to be such a severe level of suffering. So suffering comes at a spectrum, with a spectrum of levels, gradient basically, where it can have so many nuances to it. It is when the meditator or the practitioner neglects to consider that there are subtle, 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 finer levels of suffering that get to be added up. And then the person, all of a sudden, at the end of the week, or when least expected, they feel themselves collapsing, falling behind on their practice or falling off of their practice, becoming agitated, becoming angry, being upset, or having a long stint, long duration of time where they are no longer mindful. Well, why? Because there was one suffering, a drop of it, a small drop. And then there was another, then there was another, which was, they were neglected, basically. Why? Because part of the brain says, well, this is not suffering. It's not that important. It's not that heavy. So what I'm trying to say is, those are the ones that are really, really um, the spies, if you will, The, the sneaky ones that come in without you detecting them. And they add one layer at a time until they become overwhelming. For example, the, this, exa- uh, this one where Lord Buddha says, uh, flavors that are tasted by the tongue. So perhaps you go and you're wanting to have a meal or perhaps uh, ordering coffee or you order coffee and the coffee comes to you in the mail and you're making it and you discover even though the brand is the same, You paid the same price, but the quality of the coffee is not the same. What that triggers is a slight little friction in the mind of displeasure. Ah, why is it not the same? I mean, you can have many examples of this. You're looking up the sky, and it's supposed to be a clear sky, but the sky isn't as blue as you expected. It's a little bit gray, or there's a mist. So if you're following the logic, you can also see that there is a, a, a mechanism of comparing and contrasting. That is what Lord Buddha says, uh, what calls conceit or mana. Better than, equal to, and less than. Those three levels of comparing and contrasting, which cause us to grasp onto things. Like that person who says, oh, I want the same quality coffee for the price that I pay. Or I came all this way to have this meal and the chef is different now. And the meal is no longer the same. So that happened to me once at a Thai restaurant in Los Angeles where I there was this Thai restaurant that I used to like to go to and I would I would know the the servers etc and one day you know when I ordered the meal I tasted it it the meal that I was my favorite at the time tasted different and I and the person came by the server and he's asking how was it how am I enjoying the meal etc and I said something's different about the meal it's not the same it doesn't have the same spices and all he says oh I'm sorry I forgot to mention we have a new chef something in me went oh there goes my favorite meal what is that that's a subtle level of suffering and what I'm encouraging you to consider is to Look at the many experiences that we have during the day, a series of sufferings, plural, that might not be as heavy as being slaughtered or starving, but still it is suffering. And it registers, it puts a dent on the mind, because the mind is not there to observe what is taking place. That is why we need Sati and Sampajanya to observe these subtle sufferings. It's, ah, I see you. Because if we stop it at that level, if we capture it at that level, it will not get to be huge later on. That is how we can practice restraint. Sangvara, as Lord Buddha talks about, which is part of the, uh, the right effort, four right efforts, Right. So, I think we did the tongue. Uh, Now we go to the body. Similarly, there are tangibles that are touched by the body, that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by, and cling to these tangibles, then excitement arises in his heart. Punna... I declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering. Similarly, there are thoughts and ideas known by the mind that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu allows himself to be pulled into, delight in, or become satisfied by, and cling to these thoughts, then excitement arises in his heart punna i declare that the presence of excitement in the heart is itself the presence of suffering for those of us who have been very uh, much accustomed to trained in uh, thinking a lot processing and then we get to be attracted to the dhamma and we latch to, we grab These principles that we like or resonate with us. We forget to consider that they are simply mind objects. We latch on to them. We latch on to companions that think like us. About these themes. We like to gather. Just like animals do around a watering hole. Because we like. To have that sense of companionship with those people who have the same flavors or tastes when it comes to these different mind objects. Now, out of all these six, Lord Buddha says how mind objects are the biggest, the subtlest, the strongest, the most powerful in capturing us and keeping us in suffering. Because for all intents and purposes, we might have the luxurious lifestyle with all five senses being completely happy, completely provided for, I mean. But the mind object does not allow us to rest and enjoy any of those things. You see this in very rich people these days. They have everything we could, any, any human being rather, could ever want. Status, money, wealth, celebrity, whatever it is but they are not content because there are ideas and objects in the mind that they are still running after. Until that is complete, they won't rest. In fact, it will never be complete. As far as I'm concerned, the most um, insidious, dangerous uh, mind objects are related with the Dhamma. That is, not the Dhamma itself, but what they can become for the person. Because that is where we can be lost in ignorance, while at the same time convincing ourselves that we know Dhamma. Or we're practicing the Dhamma. Why? Because there's a series of Dhammic verses or things that we repeat to ourselves. And it's very dangerous when we hang out or... ECHO uh, WITH SIMILAR-MINDED INDIVIDUALS WHO ARE ON THE SAME LEVEL. I met with uh, a student some time ago. um, And he said something um, That I'm sure you've heard at one point or another. And I've read it some places, Uh, he says. If I am hanging out with some friends. And I am the smartest among them. The wisest among them, that is a bad crowd. That is not a good crowd of friends. I have to be the dumbest, he said. (laughs) I have to be surrounded by more wiser individuals wiser because they will challenge me that's what he was trying to say so mind objects can be like a cobweb like a net that we can get caught in like fish unless because how do we know that we are caught is there the delighting in is there the excitement present in your mind is there stillness or is there is the mind all over the place? That is the clue. That is the key that Lord Buddha is giving us. A shortcut to understanding. If you have that, then you have suffering. I don't care what he, what it is that is your object. Whether it's mind, objects, whether it's flavors, sights, doesn't matter. So... In essence, Lord Buddha is saying the putujana or the uneducated, uh, uneducated in in terms of the Dhamma in practice, uh, a person who's not experienced insights nor is willing to even go that route, a putujana is a person who is locked on, lost in following the sixth sense. doors, the objects, and being delighted in, which is in Pali, nandi, uh, nandi uh, another form of, of the word excitement. Whether it's uh, experienced through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, um, and, and the mind. This is what attachment is all about, the identification with the sens- sense object. And somebody might say, well, are you saying we need to become desensitized, new, uh, uh, completely uh, oblivious or, or uncaring of what these six senses are giving us? No. Are we disengaged from them? Are we unengaged from them? Basically, is the person at some level of impassivity, of of becoming completely dull in their perception of things? Is that what the Dhamma is saying? No. That would be non-Buddhist, in fact. This is not about becoming apathetic. This is about becoming empathetic, but... Keeping the arrowhead sharp enough for it to continue and do its task, its work, the mind to do its work. That is the dhamma, not something contrary to it, like uh, becoming indifferent, for example. Because you still have today people who think that even upekka is the same as being so neutral where it actually is in the domain of indifference. That's not upekka. You're very much engaged, but you are not pulled into whatever these sixes, uh, six senses are giving you. Uh, and here's where Lord Buddha gives us the, uh, as being the perfect uh, 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 physician, he's, he's giving us the cure. That was the disease. So there is, we, we are seeing in essence... The uh, we just saw the first and so second noble truths there is suffering, and what is the cause of suffering? So now we are seeing, seeing the other two of the four noble truths, even though he's not per se highlighting it as these are the four noble truths or the Eightfold Path, Noble Eightfold Path, but you see it all throughout. So here's where the switch happens. But Punna. There are sights seen by the eyes that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these sights, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of of suffering, the ending of suffering. So a wise person is not dull-witted. They're not oblivious to if something is attractive or if something is agreeable or pleasant. They don't walk around with their eyes closed. That's what some, te- some people understand when we talk about restraint. No, you're aware of your surroundings. You're aware of even the mind objects. The thoughts that come. Even the nasty thoughts. The thoughts that come in and mess up your peacefulness of state of mind. In the Anguttara Nikaya, Lord Buddha, I think it's in the book of sixes, where Lord, Lord Buddha says... Uh, a bhikkhu or a person you should, One shouldn't think about This only being directed to bhikkhus Of course, this is for all of us Practitioners He says That the Person has so much Tolerance and patience even Towards the thoughts I found that very interesting, what do you mean the thoughts How can I tolerate the thoughts Well, have you ever Saturn meditation and the hindrances came up, yeah, that's a thought, but especially when um, I see it more as those habitual patterns of thoughts that every once in a while come, either from your past or uh, worst case scenarios, uh, thoughts, things that really are disruptive, they attack you for when you least expect. And you're in a, such a beautiful state of mind and they come. Now, if you don't have patience and tolerance, that interaction, that, that, uh, that might trigger there to be ill will, aversion towards what? Towards the thought. Go away. So practitioner is someone who is able to even tolerate that. So it's not just, therefore, the, the agreeable things that we are observing. It's also the disagreeable things. Because they have been caught by the sixth sense doors. So a practitioner, in this case, Lord Buddha's talking about the bhikkhu, because punna is a bhikkhu. Um, and every time, by the way, you hear in a sutta, Lord Buddha talking about a bhikkhu is supposed to do this or that, You know for sure that he's talking. He's addressing bhikkhus. But it's not uh, that the message is only for bhikkhus. No. Lord Buddha was very careful who his audience was at all times. So he would address it. Uh, But sometimes you also had householders. He would still talk about uh, it it, in the tone of, of a bhikkhu. Why? Because... The bhikkhus are still there and everyone else could actually benefit from that teaching so the excitement is the thing which is not being led to arise in the person that is the thing the person is very well aware whether it's something agreeable or disgusting for example and that is how the suffering does not arise and in these tiny little paragraphs these packages of information you're also not just getting the cessation or the nirodha, the third noble truth, you're also getting the path. Because Lord Buddha is saying, because the person is not leaning into, does not cling to the thing, he's talking about right effort. He's talking about the noble eightfold path, in essence. Similarly, there are sounds heard by the ears that are liked, preferred, and desired that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these sounds, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna, I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of suffering. So basically, what we only have to do is get rid of the excitement. And we get rid of suffering. Now, in our culture, we are taught from a very young age that excitement is good. We have to go after excitement. You have entire cities dedicated, entire countries dedicated to excitement. You have places like, you know, Um, I don't know, uh, countries that have so many beautiful beaches and things that make a lot of money from people. Come, come to us. Visit us. Las Vegas is a perfect example. It doesn't have any beaches, but it's all full of fake excitement. Anything that can get people to go. People cannot wait in America, for example, to turn 21 years old, which is legal drinking age i find that phrase funny legal drinking age so anyhow they go they can't wait to go to las vegas why to become more excited so from a very young age we're being taught to be excited and here we come across the dhamma and it is saying one shouldn't be excited but why Is there suffering? Yes. If you have suffering, it means very clearly that sati and sampajanya are not there. Why? Because the mind is no longer steady. It is no longer stable. It is tumultuous. It is excited or having delighted in, lost itself in. You don't have to use the word excited. You can use your own words. I don't want to be lost in this experience because you won't be able to think clearly and the arrowhead is no longer sharp. It's very dull. The arrow, the shaft of it is crooked. You can even think of it like that. You can't shoot an arrow that is crooked. It will fall. It won't even fly through the air. Similarly, there are odors smelled by the nose that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these odors, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna, I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of suffering. Similarly, there are flavors that are tasted by the tongue that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these flavors, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna, I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of suffering." Similarly, there are tangibles that are touched by the body, that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these tangibles, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna. I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of suffering. And here at last, similarly, there are thoughts and ideas known by the mind that are liked, preferred, and desired, that are enjoyable, attractive, pleasant, agreeable, and exciting. Now, if the bhikkhu does not allow himself to be pulled into, nor delight in, nor become satisfied by, or cling to these thoughts, then excitement does not arise in his heart. Punna, I declare that the vanishing of excitement in the heart is itself the vanishing of suffering. So we just received a brief exposition of the Four Noble Truths where the excitement is that is being um, presented here again and again or the light is nothing more is nothing other than the uh, presence of craving or tanha it is because of tanha that we have become uh you know uh, we we become one in the same with the aggregates that's when they become called they they are called the grasping aggregates and here as i was mentioning Uh, We saw the two noble truths, the truth of uh, suffering or dukkha uh, satcha. And then we also saw samudaya satcha, which is the cause of suffering, the origin, the arising, the thing that causes the arising of suffering. And then we also saw how Lord Buddha presented the cessation of suffering, niroda satcha. And then finally, the magga Satcha, which is the path, uh, truth, the noble truth of the path. Which comes about when the person has relinquished the excitement, the excitement about, or the delight in, whatever it was coming in. And if you recall, from the Anapana Sati Sutta that we covered a few, um, I think, well, the last time, the last two uh, sutta explorations, we saw that the very last tetra, the four, you know, it came with 16, with the last four were, and especially the very last one, patini sagga nupassi, Asasisamiti sikkati, by um, uh, contemplating giving up or relinquishment, I shall breathe in. Lord Buddha instructs. And patinis sagganupasi, pasasis samiti sikkati. By breathing out, I shall also contemplate relinquishment and giving up. See, the Dhamma is so beautiful because anywhere you get a hold of a, a teaching in any of the suttas, they are all related, unless they have been in. You know, injected or infused later on by different traditions and different things that came up 500 years later or so. But in essence, we see the connection here with the Anapanasati. Meaning that it teaches us to become pragmatic in our practice. What I mean by that, the application of the technique. You don't necessarily have to go through all the 16 tet- uh, the st- steps of the tetrads. Coming, going back to the anapanasati. All you have to do is, can you use, for example, the breath, or even when you're radiating metta, every time you're radiating metta, can you relinquish your attachment to whatever it is you want to happen? Can you give up? Can you give up? Are your hands, are your fingers soft? Or are they like very much like fists you want to hold? The image that I feel comfortable using over the years, I've used it so many times in Dhamma sharings. It's like you're thirsty and you go to a well or to a stream to drink water. But because of your excitement and delight, because you've been walking for days without water in the desert. In your excitement, you might want to grab hold of the water with your hands, with a fist. Well, how much water will you be able to grab with a fist? None, not even a droplet maybe. It is only when you scoop up the water carefully with hands cupped like this, softly, that you can get a very good mouthful. In fact, fi- it might be so much that you can, you can be satiated. Your thirst might be gone because it, it can gather a lot. So that softness is also how I see the relinquishment approach to giving up. So yes, you are observing the world. You are seeing beautiful sights. But you're not losing yourself to them. The mind is steadily being watched by you, observed. Punna... Now that I have taught you the Dhamma in brief, where will you go to dedicate yourself to diligent practice? Now, this is the second aspect of the sutta. This is where we're changing directions. And now it becomes, if you will, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily more human, but you definitely see that a loving connection here where Lord Buddha, before he allows punna to leave to go to wherever he wants so he wants to make sure that punna is basically on solid ground and he's well protected bante now that i have been taught the dhamma in brief by the blessed one i will go in the direction of the sunaparanta region which basically is where he came from um, punna and as far as the location I like to know where these places are so I research and just and basically it is the Suparaka um, uh, um, capital of it was Suparaka but today it is in the state of Maharashtra which is on the western side of India near Mumbai. If you recall from the Bahia Sutta Bahia also was from the slightly north of modern-day Mumbai, so it's, it's pretty far, uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Salati, which is almost on the eastern, um, it's not on the coast, but it's in the state of Bihar, close to, um, so again, Punna was um, from a wealthy family, so, and there was no Dhamma there, and, uh, but he grew up in Sunaparanta. So he's counting on his connections, perhaps, and his desire to go ahead and teach while he also practices seriously. Seriously. So that uh, apparently is the goal. But we'll find that more as we go on. But Punna, the people of Sunaparanta are known to be uncultured and brutal in their ways. What would you do if they insult and abuse you? Hmm. Very, you know, to the point, practical question. Bhante, if the people of Sunaparanta were to insult and abuse me, then I will think to myself truly, these people of Sunaparanta are indeed polite and kind hearted. For they restrain themselves from assaulting and physically harming me with their fists. Interesting way of looking at it. But, Punna, if the people of Sunaparanta were to go ahead and assault and physically harm you with their fists, what would you do then? Bhante, if the people of Sunaparanta were to assault and physically harm me with their fists, then I will think to myself, truly, these people of Sunaparanta are indeed polite and kind-hearted, for they do not throw rocks and stones at me. Interesting. Interesting. This is where playing a little bit of comparing. Earlier, I was saying about comparing contrast and in its relation to mana or conceit is is bad. But again, the Dhamma is not just purely black and white. We can play with some of these to our own advantage so that we can actually accelerate our progress, meaning Punna knows that being assaulted or insulted is pretty bad. But he's trying to also, I don't know his state of mind, of course, but from what Um, I understand through his responses is that he is trying to also look at the brighter side of things. Now, as as a child growing up in war-torn Beirut, Lebanon, I was injured. I didn't have, you know, I had my toes lost and all these things and I wasn't, I was most of the time stuck at home. I couldn't go and play this and that. So I was very much isolated a portion of my life as a child and I would complain to my father and I remember one particular incident when I was crying to him as eight years old I was only eight years old and I was complaining and my dad looked at me with his understanding gaze and he said do you know so and so the grocer's daughter and she was about six eight years older than me and I said yes and she he said Well, she was walking home when a bomb exploded in front of her and she lost both of her legs. That shut me up. I could no longer compare myself that I am the worst because none of my cousins were hurt. No, none of my friends were hurt at school. I was, so I was only focused at my so-called singular example Until I saw, or through my dad's uh, reminding me of it, the person, that young woman who had lost both her legs, and now she apparently, later on I saw her, she was walking with prosthetics, and later on I found out that she was married and she had children and so... That is how I personally would understand as the usefulness of this methodology that Venerable Punna is using. There's always something worse that could have happened. Now, how many of us can actually practice that in today's world? Because we're so fixated on our situation, my condition, being so unique. Why is that? doesn't have to be so. There's always someone worse than you, I tell my patients in in psychotherapy. There's always someone in a worse state. Even if you get like third degree of, I don't know, burns in your body and you cannot even move. And you're in the hospital like this. There's always someone worse than you. I don't remember where I was saying it, but I was using that example. And I said, you could be in that state, but somebody else might be in a worse state. Like, how? Well, they might have also lost their eyesight. Plus all the burns. Or broken all their bones. So using these in a strategic manner can really pull us out of the emotional uh, gunk. Or fear, even. But punna... If the people of Sunaparanta were to throw rocks and stones at you, then what would you do? Here we see how Lord Buddha is examining Punna if he is ready to go back to his country and face its, uh, its citizens and all the consequences of him going there. Bhante... If the people of Sunāparānta were to throw rocks and stones at me, then I will think to myself, Truly, these people of Sunāparānta are indeed polite and kind-hearted, for they do not come after me and beat me with clubs, baseball bats, and things like that, sticks. But, Punna, if the people of Sunāparānta were to come after you and beat you with clubs, then what will you do? Bhante, if the people of Sunaparanta were to come after me and beat me with clubs, then I will think to myself, truly, these people of Sunaparanta are indeed polite and kind hearted, for they do not attack and stab me with knives. Uh-huh. But, Punna, if the people of Sunaparanta were to attack and stab you with knives, then what will you do? Uh, I I, just a quick pause here. This progressive uh, um, intensification, if you will, of of, of, um, abuse, the intensifying stages of being badly treated or ill treated is something that we also see in the uh, more in a more dramatic way. in, in the Kakachupama Sutta, the simile of the saw discourse, where Lord Buddha was addressing uh, Venerable uh, uh, Maliya Paguna, I believe, and he was getting annoyed uh, and angry and insulting and even physically uh, getting angry at other bhikkhus who would point out the mistakes of the bhikkhunis that venerable Maulia Paguna would go and teach and the Bhikkhunis, every time they said something to the Bhikkhunis about Maulia Paguna, they would get upset so there was a very much unnatural almost uh, relationship going on so lord buddha had called Maulia Paguna and asked him is this true and he said yes Bhante. so he was encouraging him to be uh, Tolerant and, and more um, Able to persevere Even if he is uh, criticized In his case, even if they were criticizing the nuns He would just blow his top off He would just get physically, visibly angry And um, Lord Buddha says Even if they criticize you, beat you physically And then even he gets to a point where um, oh, The term that he uses is uh, you are a bhikkhu, you no longer can respond, react, rather, the way that householders do, anybody like that, so you are supposed to be working from a, uh, a different uh, level of, of functioning, uh, whether it's socially or personally or um, etc, and he uses the, these, um, this image, he says, even if you were being uh, chopped off, <laughs> cut into pieces with a knife, or uh, somebody would come with a two-hand, two individual saws, like you see this in some countries where they have you know, logging and things, where you have one person standing on this side of the tree and the other one on the other, and they have this massive saw they cut big trees with. He says, even if somebody would come and they would start to savagely cut you in half without anesthesia. (laughs) If you have a single thought of ill will towards them in that moment, then you're no longer practicing the Dhamma that I teach. You're no longer my student, basically. I still struggle with that image. Uh, but it's a powerful image, very dramatic, as you can see. So you see this also, uh, the, the encouragement that Lord Buddha is, is trying to infuse the bhikkhu with to have loving kindness. And in addition, he says, instead of having ill will towards those two people who are hacking him in half, basically sawing him in half, he says, the bhikkhu must permeate loving kindness to them. Because it's very easy for me to sit comfortably in my room where there's no bombs falling, everything is fine, my stomach is full, I'm happy, I slept a long, you know, good, you know, a few hours. And then I practice metta radiation, just sending it out into the sixth direction, it's nice. But Lord Buddha is saying, it's not as powerful, as good, as really advanced level as permeating metta when somebody is sawing you in half, is is hurting you, or even looking at you the wrong way. How many of us can actually tolerate that if somebody looks at us with, you know, derogatory manner or say something nasty to us? Or laugh at us before we even get to the baseball bat or thrown rocks at us. Can I tolerate that much? Many of us get so insulted when someone even sends us an email. Where they say nice things, but in one sentence in the paragraph, we hear, we see something like, they're trying to pinch us. Oh, I have to respond back. Let me... Concoct a different response and but still I will put two things two sharp knives at them. We've all been there. So the loving kindness has to come from a place of. Real appreciation of life life that is happening to us. And that is impossible to happen. Unless there is mindfulness and diligence in persevering with whatever the conditions that are in front of us are trying to do, because every single one of the six doors are open and they're coming at us to shake us, and that is the mindful, that is the approach of a meditator. How it's supposed to be. And in spite of all those conditions to go ahead and practice your object of meditation, I don't care if it's uh, breath meditation, can you stay with it, while you're also open to whatever's happening around you? So, and this is, so Lord Buddha asked, uh, but Punna, if the people of Sunnah Paranta were to attack and stab you with knives, then what will you do? And this is Punna's response. Pante, if the people of Sunāparānta were to attack and stab me with knives, then I will think to myself, truly these people of Sunāparānta are indeed polite and kind-hearted, for they have not taken my life with sharp weapons. And you know what Lord Buddha is going to ask now. But, Punna, if the people of Sunāparānta do go ahead and take your life with their sharp weapons, then what would you do? Bande, if the people of Sunaparanta were to take my life, then I will think to myself truly, there have been disciples of the Blessed One who have sought to take their own life by the blameless use of the knife in order to put an end to being stifled and disgusted with this body and the hampering they feel with life itself. But here, blessed Lord, I would be gaining such an end for myself with the knife at the hands of the people of Sunaparanta without having sought or asked for it. Basically, he's saying they would be doing me a favor and all free of charge. Now, for our modern culture, Many of us will have issues with this. Uh, So is the sutta promoting uh, uh, suicide or something like that? Not necessarily. We need to understand the historical context of what, and not just the historical, but also the practical aspect of of, of what he is referring to when he's saying there have been students of the, uh, the Tathagata, or the disciples of the Lord Buddha, who have sought the blameless use of the knife. I've used the blameless use of the knife because that is what uh, you see several times in the suttas and also uh, elaborated on in the commentaries. Um, when a person reaches a certain level of practice, um, you've heard me mention many, many, many times the, the presence of viraga and then nibbida, dispassion, the detachment from all things carnal, all things physical, etc. And then the nibbida, which is the disenchantment, if you will, that comes in naturally. That's why a person who becomes a sotapanna and anything higher than that they are exponentially experiencing more and more and deeper and deeper levels of these two, Viraga and Nibbida. Now, as the practitioner is struggling day in, day out to really penetrate, and uh, let's say, if they are not not yet arahants, and they're struggling and the body meanwhile is failing Lord, uh, Venerable Sariputta would say to Lord Buddha in re- reference to the bodies as this body is leaking from everywhere. And you have many references to the nine exits of the body. Orifices of the body where it's always leaking. That's suffering. For a person who is no longer attached to this life who are just working on themselves to attain that level. So some individuals have sought the blameless use of, well, actually the use of the knife. It becomes blameless when the person, by the way, when the person has reached a a level where the three defilements are either completely gone, meaning they are an arahant already, or uh, on the verge of being an arahant. And the the term in the sutta in Pali is actually if we translate it. Um, just transliteration of it rather it's like hiring an assassin that's would be that that would be one way of translating and many translators into English that's what they've used so I preferred to use the blameless use of the knife. Um, now again. The encouragement, if the person is really going to go ahead with it, it's always important to know that the person has become, at the very least, uh, uh, an anagami. This is my own understanding. Some might disagree because there have been Western bhikkhus, up until recently even, um, who have used a knife. Um, there was one, uh, I forgot his name, even though he's very uh, well-known among some Western bhikkhus, um, who uh, committed suicide. Um, uh, this was in the 40s or 50s, somewhere like that. Uh, I forget his name. If, um, Jnana Vira, I think. Uh, Bhante Jnana Vira. And... He used the knife, but in his letters later on, people said, well, he was at least a, a sotapanna or something like that. Well, you never come across any sotapannas in the suttas who have actually done that, even lay people. Now, I'm not going to be judging the, uh, the late venerable, but it is important for us to really know uh, what it is um, and um, the practice has to be still persevering in our hearts a few lines earlier we saw how lord buddha is trying to see what would punna do if people came at him so if no one's coming at you and your practice is in a stalemate and you're not wanting to progress in your practice and you want a quick exit there's a problem so our effort has to be, um, is, you know, as, as a bhikkhu, I can say this, uh, has to be to realize the fulfillment of this path, which means full arahanship. And I've dealt with, with this issue with even in, a, in the capacity of a psychotherapist in the past, where individuals are very eager to end it because they're in so much suffering. I try to remove them from the living situations where they're in. Now we're all living in a very um, difficult world. No one can argue that. And it seems like the, 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 the noose or the, the tightness is getting tighter and tighter. The level of control that we're being subjected to, etc. So the person who is gravitating or dwelling or thinking, pondering, of harming themselves has forgotten the other aspects that they possess still. What I mean by that is, I'll give you examples of of, of things that I've said to people um, to bring up a sense of urgency, but in the more... Uh, wholesome direction. Most of us can speak, you know, at least one language. We have some education. Some of us have uh, advanced degrees. There are places on the planet that don't have education children entire communities are illiterate who well we have a body. We can lift a few buckets of water, we can walk, we can carry water to and from. A well to uh, let's say a village, basically what i'm saying is, despite the fact that a person might. uh, Reach a point where they find no use for them that doesn't mean that the world does not find usefulness in them. And that will completely change the mindset the worldview of this person who has become hopeless, so this is not what we're talking about here. Such a practitioner is not hopeless. The Dhamma does not make a person hopeless when it comes to the practice. You might be, of course, hopeless towards the world, etc. but that is not why the bhikkhus are, are using the blameless use. Blameless because they no longer are going to be taking on the burden of karma of that action. especially as an Arahant. And there were so many procedures you would have other fellow bhikkhus going and visiting, talking them out of it, trying to. And you have one incident where Venerable Ananda and Venerable Sariputta go to, uh, I forgot which Venerable it was, he was staying in a cave and he was very old and he was very sick, but he was an Arahant. And uh, he's Trying to use the knife, and the venerable Sariputta and venerable Ananda trying to convince him not to. But he's so sick, and he he, he says, "Friends, I will be using it blamelessly. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. I'm an, you know, He's not saying I'm an Aran, but but they don't. they also want to help him, but they can't interfere, so they go back. Meanwhile, he does use the knife. And they find out, and they reach, again, Lord Buddha, and Venerable Sariputta says, Bante, he used a knife. You know, he's kind of like disappointed and sad that he lost a a friend in the holy life, companion. And Lord Buddha turns to Sariputta and says, Sariputta, didn't the Venerable so-and-so, I forgot his name, but uh, Lord Buddha didn't forget his name, of course, in the sutta, But he says, didn't he say to you that he's going to be using it blamelessly? He died without any asavas, no kileshas. He used it blamelessly. He was an arahant. That's where the candle gets extinguished. So there are elements, but sometimes some people might become too eager that they've reached that stage. And that is very wrong and then they start to influence other generations to come and now they are going to be relying on these bhikkhus who have used the knife blamefully so we have to not over exaggerate our levels of attainment if there are attainments to begin with so there's a tremendous role that we have to play in the sense of responsibility towards the sasana. So it's not just a solitary path. My words, my behavior has to reflect proper dhamma. So that is why I, um, I wanted to say those words. So it takes a lot to reach this stage. Um, I can just imagine. That's where I'm coming from. It, it must take a lot to reach this stage, to become non-attached to the body, to reach to that stage of dispassion and disenchantment. Because they have to be uh, really grown so strong in the person to be able to stand their ground and take it, being cut open, being slapped. Have you ever been slapped? Not as a child, but as an adult. I don't know. Just imagining that before we get to people coming at us with, with sticks and knives. So sometimes it's good to play these games with your mind. Like how would my reaction be? And watch your heart. Is it getting excited? Is, it your, is your mind getting tumultuous? Just visualizing a tiny little bit of that. Or will you tear up the chains and try to strangle the person and kill the person? It's interesting to do these personal, tiny little, and no one needs to know about them, except you. Just to visualize, what were your, what would your responses be? Or would they just be pure reactionary? Just questions. And then he says, this is what I would do, blessed Lord. This indeed is what I would think, oh blessed one. Excellent, punna. Very good, punna. By possessing such self-restraint while being supported by the quiet contentment of the heart, you are now able to go to suna aparanta. Now, Punna, you may do what you think is appropriate. So Lord Buddha was also watching the mind, scanning, observing the quality of Punna's mind to see if these were just words or he truly believed he felt it viscerally, and he was determined. And we see that Lord Buddha approves. Then the venerable Punna, being delighted in hearing the words of the Blessed One, got up from his seat, paid his respect to the Blessed One, and after circumambulating the Blessed One by keeping him to his right, he left. Uh, to his right, he left. Uh, later, having put his dwelling in order and taking his alms bowl and outer robe, the Venerable Punna left in the direction of the Sunāparānta region. And after having wandered by stages, eventually he reached the city. Wanting to establish himself in Sunāparānta, the Venerable Punna decided to spend the rains retreat there, the Vassa, during which time he was able to gather around him a large community of 500 white-robed male lay disciples, and 500 white-robed female lay disciples, supporting and anchoring them in the dhamma. Meanwhile, he himself realized the three knowledges, and some time later, the Venerable Punna attained finally bāna. The commentaries say that Venerable Punna attained arahantship during that vassa, either at the end or during it. So he was only able to complete one vassa in Sunaparanta, and uh, but he was able to um, bring to him five hundred upasakas and five hundred upasikas, which says a lot. And he was a solo; like he was functioning solo. He, there was no other. Uh, we don't have any record of any other bhikkhu being there. So. He must have done good, especially because during that vassa, he also was able to attain arahanship. We know then that he had the right drive to go to the Lord Buddha to get the brief instruction. Interestingly enough, in the book of the ones in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, we have um, four suttas, but one specific... um, um, or actually, sections in the—they're um, not each of them can be considered a sutta. But basically, Lord Buddha lists the foremost foremost bhikkhus. He also has one for foremost bhikkhunis, foremost upasakas, and foremost upasikas. But there's a category of eighty bhikkhus—a list of eighty bhikkhus who were number one in one thing. In addition to other things, but they were number one, declared by Lord Buddha. So, even though uh, Punna was not listed there, um, he is still recognized in other suttas, and especially the commentaries point this out how Lord Buddha recognized Punna for his perseverance, for uh, enduring perseverance. Um, adivasana Kanti, it's called. And for his diligence in his duties as well as his sila, his virtue. So, um, and I have a reference here. Um, well, uh, the quote I have here uh, the Buddha praises Punna uh, by saying, endowed with such discipline and stillness, you will be able to dwell in the country called Sunaparanta. So, Enduring perseverance is so important. And that is the thing which I also encourage all of us in this very, I would say, crazy time period we're living through, especially as we're starting the new calendar year. In essence, it doesn't make a difference. It's just another day. We all know that. But it can prepare the mind with bringing up a certain attitude from us. Because the world is going to be the way it is, the way it will unfold. It's not in our hands as such. But our reaction, let that be our response. Coming from a place of enduring perseverance. Because it is your journey, nobody else's, as far as you're concerned. Just like it was Punna's, Venerable Punna's journey. Then many bhikkhus went and approached the Blessed One, and after paying their respects, sat to one side and said, Bhante, the clansman Punna, who was instructed by the Blessed One on the Dhamma in brief, has died. What is his destination? Where is he now reborn? Because it was so uh, recent, these bhikkhus, apparently they were also present, when Punna had gone to receive the brief instruction from Lord Buddha. So it's really fresh in memory. They said, Bhante, that monk, Punna, who left to Sunaparanta, who came to you asking for the instructions. So it's, that's another way we know that it was very recent. Uh, and the clansman also indicates um, um, that he was very young. So he was in his early 20s. Uh, the term is uh, kulaputta, clansman. You won't say that to a person who's middle aged or who's, who's been advanced in, in his vassas, in his many years of retreat, uh, reigns. So, uh, a very short time after he came to, he went to Sunaparanta, he must have died. Now, there is no mention of how Venerable Punna died and uh, the details of his death are not there in any any place in the commentaries except that it was during um, his the completion of his reigns retreat so one might say that uh, most probably the people of sunaparan despite the fact that there were 500 upasakas and 500 upasikas uh, all of whom considered him venerable punna, to be their preceptor. Nevertheless, he must have come across some people who really took it to that level to cut him, to kill him. And, um, and he stood his ground as an arahant. And uh, so to me, that takes the sutta to another level of relatability, of the harshness that life can be, uh, life could have. Um, and this is Lord, so there the monks were asking where is his destination because they're thinking we cannot pass, possibly be an Arahant. That's not even you know passing through their minds, but this is Lord Buddha's response. Bhikkhus, the clansman Punna was wise, he stood on his own in the Dhamma. He did not trouble me with too many questions on the Dhamma. The clansman punna has attained final Nibbana. Wow. I fell in love with this term. He stood on his own in the Dhamma. When someone's insulting you, there's nobody other than you who is on the receiving end of that insult. Nobody else is probably feeling that That. that heart being agitated, the mind, the old instincts coming up, the sankharas, the habitual tendencies coming up in your heart and trying to shake you from your roots. You know how it feels at that moment. But similarly, when we experience the truths of the Dhamma, it is the person who's experiencing. It's you standing on your own. That's why Lord Buddha says, It is to be realized by the wise, for themselves, by themselves. It's you standing on both of your feet and experiencing it. There, there isn't any higher authenticity, if you will. Authentic living experience. And that is what Venerable Punna has had, apparently, being confirmed, as, as Lord Buddha is doing. And another way of understanding, standing on your own, on, on his own in this case, uh, means that while instructing also, he was on his own in the Dhamma or the teaching and did not need any teacher. This is why it's crucial for the person to become a Sotapanna because you then will have your own authenticity, which is the same authenticity that every noble disciple and Arahant has. You are at that level of confirmation, of assuredness. And uh, there's a special feature uh, that. Uh, describes this being on your own standing on your own specifically and uh, this is a, a, a feature or a characteristic that is seen in the person who has entered the stream of the dhamma that's why the person has to be at least a stream winner and pali is sotapatti um which is you relying on you, the authenticity of not what you think, but you will know. That is why I, I always try to tell people, and this we get from the suttas, of course, um, that you don't need anybody's confirmation. If you've tasted the dhamma, you know it. This is not a mental conjuring. You're not creating something that it isn't there. This is not coming from your sankharas. It breaks you off from anything that is past. That's why we have the three things that are being dropped, the three sangyojanas. Sakkaya ditti is number one. That personality uh, identification is like melted candle. Just Melting away. So you're not going and looking for things to impress anybody. You don't care. You're definitely not announcing it to the world. It's interesting. Sometimes uh, (laughs) I get emails and and I look up the person and I see that they have pages on Facebook. And one of the first phrases or descriptions for themselves is... Uh, the person is a sotapanna. They're declaring it on Facebook. Uh, I don't know. I should laugh, feel sad, but you don't need any such um, things. You don't need to go around and ask people. You don't. Because there is a life transformation that is taking place. The Dhamma has come alive in you. That's why you're now in the stream. That is your home you're going to. You're smelling it, you're tasting it in every single experience. So you are standing on your own, definitely. And that is where Venerable Punna was standing. And that is the thing which can get... A, 500 upasakas and upasikas. That, that could be another reason. So, uh, just to close off the sutta, this is what the Blessed One said, and those bhikkhus delighted in the words spoken by the Blessed One. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So, we do see how Lord Buddha in this sutta also elaborates not using those terms, of course, the, 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 um, the Four Noble Truths, but it's there, as we saw. How we can fight the Kileshas, How we can, especially in the second portion of the sutta, how there is a clear instruction on the significance of resisting and overcoming hatred, anger, Specifically, that aspect of the kileshas, of the three poisons. Hatred, it's so powerful because it can have so many different nuances of it, levels of it. Hatred can be resentment. Hatred can be jealousy. Hatred can be anything that doesn't sit well with us. It has a bad, bitter taste in the mouth. But that is where we... Find ourselves being caught, especially in a world as it is today, where there's a leaning towards even people breaking up from each other, families breaking up over hatred, over what is supposed to be against what it's not supposed to be. So I see this all the time nowadays. And it is so important for us to be able to endure, but with a clear mind. So, Because ultimately it is all about the complete eradication of these three unwholesome states of the Kadeshas, greed, hatred, delusion. People want to be safe today. People want to save their lives. They don't want to get sick. And that has become so important for them at the cost of their own humanity. What are they saving? I don't know. Is this a body that you're trying to save, which, by the way, is going to be dead? You might save yourself and do these things, and then you're going to get hit by a bus, let's say. Oh, sorry, there goes that. But how did you treat the people around you, meanwhile, as you were struggling to be kept safe? So let us put the attention where it needs to be. The body is supposed to break apart. It is breaking apart from the moment of birth. It's stupid for us to think that we are trying to save this body. Let us save our wisdom. Let us bring wisdom. Wisdom. Because that's the only thing that's going to take us to full awakening, the release from suffering. The release from suffering. So in essence, this sutta is telling us of a Buddhist story that tells us of, uh, of the awakening of a devoted, dedicated disciple who was even willing to risk his own life, if necessary. He wasn't going there to die, but he was willing to try as he was progressing on his path. His path was number one. But to create more urgency, Sangvega, he needed to place himself in a place where he knew that he was not going to be safe. That goes, interestingly, contrary to what modern human beings are doing. Trying to isolate themselves and surround themselves with just this so-called safety. Now we see where this sense of urgency is with most of the population of this planet. Our humanity should not be sacrificed for the sake of me trying to save my life. In the process, I can still try to preserve my life, do my best, but at the same time without sacrificing what you mean to me. What your life means to me. And that is the truest sense of missionary work, the way I understand it, from the Buddhist perspective. Because it is inseparable from the spiritual path, being engaged in life. And this, this is one of the reasons why this is not disengagement. This is very much engaged. Punna's life was all about engaging with the population over there, but not at the cost of him losing his own liberation or the possibility which he was able to accomplish. And that is how he became able to taste the fruits of the holy life in that particular life last life of his so let's make our own lives matter. Really stand for something, whether we live today and die tomorrow or live for 100 years and die the next day. So. That is what I'd like to share with you today, and I will pause here and uh, open for any questions, comments, thoughts you might have about the practice, about the dhamma. Yeah, ask a question,
1: Bhante. Yes. very, very illuminating and enlightening talk. And I am especially touched by the last thing you say, make your life matter. I think it's just so important. You know, we talk about Black Lives Matter and then we think that we can do something by just you know, going out to the crowd. But I, I, I totally agree with you that we really have to be, make our life matter. I have two questions, one related to, um, What you said about the vanishing of excitement is in the heart is the vanishing of suffering Mm -hmm. and is related to the grasping aggregate and we should be wary of, you know, being uh, lost in the six senses, but I want to ask you, is there a way in which we use the six senses, especially hearing. um, To. Dao excitement rather than rouse excitement. So for instance, I know that a lot of people who couldn't sleep at night would listen to soothing music. And um, I would listen to stories that are not like the (laughs) exciting stories, but no, enlightening, what I consider enlightening stories. But I was actually thinking as you're speaking, what if I listen to sutta instead? If I can find audible sutra to listen to that, is that still kind of um, not good? Because it does, you know, is still like invading mm. my five senses. So I'll finish asking my second question, which, which is not related to the talk, but to the practice, is that for those of us who find it difficult to sit for three hours like on saturday is it okay for us to do standing meditation as opposed to sitting meditation so those Mm -hmm. are my two questions
0: Mm -hmm. um i'll start with your second question then um you you can of course but uh it's important not to fall into the easy way of doing things because it's important Uh, Some people ask, uh, can I do it lying down? Well, um, unless you're injured, you're going through, you know, recovery, and you have to lie down, you know, no, you have to get up and and do at least the walking meditation needs to be incorporated, especially in the case of a person who gets drowsy, let's say, the hindrance of sloth and torpor might come in. So there is a, a, a working around, so... In the Dhamma, you will see that it's not, especially in a context like this, it's not so uh, strict or concrete in a sense. So it works with the person, it works with the body of the person, with our even proclivities or tendencies, etc. However, the intention is those tendencies that we have developed, like let's say sloth and torpor, Some people cringe when I say meditation because immediately in their mind, what is aroused is the thought of sloth or falling asleep, okay? That means that this person has been auto-suggesting themselves to sleep with the simple word of or the mantra of meditation, just that concept. So for such a person, it might be dreadful to sit for three hours. Another person, however, might look at that and say, Bunte, I can't sleep. I can't sit for forty-five minutes, but I'm going to shoot for, shoot for an hour. Can I have breaks in the between? Let's say, can I do three sittings of one hour, or forty-five minutes? I say sure, and but incorporate walking meditation in between, so you can expand that muscle, if you will. You start seeing yourself that you're able, in fact, to sit more than 45 minutes. All of a sudden, you're in one hour and 30 minutes. Wow. That really is going to impact, obviously, your self-esteem, the image of you being able to sit, and the very benefits and the fruits that come from such a sit, if you're doing it right. Instead of just, uh, you know, going gung-ho and just want, so it's basically sometimes people have ego trips. I sit for 10 hours I've sat for 2 hours I've sat for 4 days who cares let me tell let me see the quality of your mind during those hours but nevertheless there is resiliency and tolerance of you and your body's also learning the having a bigger capacity so having more of a flu instead of very strict soap nope yes we have to be very uh, humane in our approach towards ourselves and our sit. Uh, which ties into your first question. Uh, I find the example you gave of listening to the suttas um, to be, ex- you know, in congruence with what, what I was uh, reading, Lord Buddha saying. I don't find it to be causing excitement when you're listening to a sutta, let's say. However, the mind being the mind uh, and Papancha's being there uh, for uh, anyone who's unawakened, meaning the Sankaras are going wild, the mind might start to use images from the Sutta as a point of reference to skyrocket or shoot you out into the abyss of Papancha land. Meaning you're building new stories that have nothing to do with the sutta. Perhaps you have heard the sutta years ago sitting with your friends. And all of a sudden now your mind goes to your friends. And that day and the meal you ate after completely cut off from the sutta. So those are the, uh, some of the precautions that I would um, under, uh, underline or footnote there. Um, because ultimately, they must bring the mind to a point of stillness, meaning sati has to be there, mindfulness has to be there, because if you have mindfulness, you will catch the mind drifting to the memory. No, 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 come over here, come over here. We're listening to the Dhammapada. There's a story here. And And also putting the caveat for yourself, that I just want to listen to the words of Lord Buddha, and then fall asleep i'm not going to ponder i'm not going to analyze because if you do forget it you won't fall asleep so um so these are some of the ways that i would encourage Um, however eventually the person needs to come off of these crutches as well whether it's the you know ocean sounds the waves soft you know, refreshing raindrops in the jungle type of, you know, I recommend that to people often, those those types of of, of videos to calm people down. But eventually, you don't need that third wheel, or the training wheels, you need you need to remove those. Because you're finding more of a ground, you're standing on your own, basically, like the case was with Venerable Punna. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Very mm-hmm. helpful. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Any other
2: thoughts, questions, comments? Thank you for your talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was interested in the first section that it was about suffering and you referred to it covering the Four Noble Truths, which of course is about suffering as well. And uh, the things I've been reading lately have been talking a lot about karma, and this didn't mention karma at all. But it seems to me that karma and suffering are directly linked through dependent origination. Our suffering um, comes from ignorance, and that causes the actions that we take and how we feel about things call it, causing, craving, and clinging. So. Um, I'm just interested to see that this teaching that he was giving to Puna didn't mention karma at all. And my thoughts then go to how can we, uh, when we're being mindful, when we're practicing sati, are we actually practicing feeling the things that we're suffering or are we then feeling the things and how it's going to cause our, our karma, and which determines where we're going. Are we more concerned about not suffering, um, or are, should we be more concerned about the karmic results of the actions we're taking through the things that we're feeling when we're being mindful? So, uh, and, uh, so if you can give me some comment on that, I guess, because I haven't completely formed the question in my mind about yeah. what the issue is, but the issue is is <laughs> not mentioned. And it, it, it seems to be that it's becoming more and more important to me than thinking about any suffering I might be having. Suffering, I understand that it's the craving. I guess I have the understanding where it comes from. And so I, even though I feel suffering from time to time that hasn't gone away, but I understand it enough that I can forget about it more. Whereas karma is a big of an issue. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Um, When you have, um, when, when you're presented with a meal, let's say a plate of food, let's say at a diner or a restaurant or even at home, And it has all the condiments in there placed, very well done, nicely orchestrated, nicely prepared, um, with enough salt, just sufficient. Um, And then you also have some table salt in its lovely glass or whatever container next to the plate or on the table. And someone comes and asks, where is the salt? Well, obviously, they're going to point first at the bottle or the container of the salt. But a person who's tasting it also will point at the food. Even though you cannot see the salt grains, but they're tasting the salt within the food, meaning somebody did, the chef, the cook, the one prepared who prepared the food, did place salt in there. Now, why do I use the simile? Well, because... As Lord Buddha says, some wise people can understand the meaning through similes and specifically uh, in the context of kamma that you mentioned is not mentioned per se. Well, it is mentioned. In fact, I have rarely come any suttas where the kamma or the kammi uh, teaching is not there, present in the sutta. Now, what do I mean by this? How was it presented? Where? If you recall, several months back we did the Upali Sutta, where the lay person Upali had come to Lord Buddha to disprove to him the teaching that he was giving to students, meaning mind, mental action is the most important, because he was coming from a Jain tradition and Jainism's head, Nigantanataputta, had sent him to discredit Lord Buddha. And then we saw how it ended because Upali becomes a student. In fact, he becomes a Sotapanna, a stream winner, because he sees the value of, yes, the comic structure, but he also saw the supremacy as far as action is concerned, the mental uh, of the mental action, because that is the progenitor of everything else. That's where everything comes out. Now, How does that fit into today's teaching? The way I understand it, when we are looking at the person's involvement with the object being seen, heard, tasted, smelled, touched, and thought, they have a posture, they have an involvement with that. That is, they're pondering, and that pondering, the delighting in, basically, or the excitement that is being generated thanks to them being pulled into, allowing themselves to pull in to be pulled into is Kamma, as evidenced by the Kamma Vipaka, the fruit of the Kamma, which is suffering. So the person has a position towards the objects that are presented through the sixth sense doors. In the first sections where Lord Buddha was talking about what is not to be done you see how the person or the bhikkhu is attaching himself to these sixth sense objects, sixth sense door objects. And then as a consequence or vipaka or kamma vipaka, you could, what we mean by kamma usually we're talking about the fruits of kamma, but kamma itself means action. Vipaka is the fruit. They go hand in hand so um, for most of us not talking about arahants but most of us yes that's what it is how it goes so the vipaka portion for the putujana or the person who's not uh doing it right it is uh ending up being suffering the fruit of the kamma that is why because the direction Of the attention, where the attention was was laid upon, meaning where the fervency is coming from, because the person is definitely seeking, seeking to become more exhilarated, excited. From the start, from the get-go, the person seeks that out, so that is where the attention is laid, and that is what distinguishes the intentionality, meaning now we're talking about kamma, definitely. So the first grouping was talking about an individual whose kamma is directed on by ignorance, basically. As a result, the fruits of it was suffering. Now, the second category where Lord Buddha was saying not to, instructing not to be done, and he was using the example of the bhikkhu, who, although he's seeing all you know, the sights, sounds, smells, tu- uh, tastes, touches, and thoughts. He's aware, he's privy to them, but he was not allowing his attention to become ayoniso manasikara, unwise reflection, unwise attention, which would make his kamma be wholesome, contrary to the first one, which was unwholesome. So as a result of him being, using actually, yonisomanasikara, manasikara, that meant that his karmic vipakas, the fruits of it would be the absence of suffering. The cessation of suffering. Um, is, is that apparent uh, now a little bit more? Uh,
2: so yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, and as I said, I it seems to me that karma and suffering are linked anyway. Mm-hmm. What you're telling me is that I really have to be wise enough to see the karma mentioned in the suda even though when it's not specifically the word karma isn't used so we can't really talk about suffering without talking about karma because of the link
0: exactly okay exactly i I couldn't have put it better myself the way you said it, just that last portion because they come hand in hand and that's why an arahant doesn't have suffering Because they no longer make karma. New ones. But they are still on the receiving end. So long as they're alive, that is. uh, They will have to still deal with the fruits or vipakas of their past kammas. And we have countless eons of kammas to deal with. And that is another reason why Lord Buddha and every legitimate teacher... Of the dhamma would encourage the students to be involved in very much so. That is to get to that level where they no longer are going to be allowing the fruits of the past kammas uh, to land. Uh, meaning, um, I mean, breaking the or cutting the that time period into shorter and shorter pieces, as is the case is with the Narahant. Uh, and what I'm referring to specifically is attaining Sotapanna stage, because I was mentioning this to someone the other day who was not familiar with the Dhamma and was asking me about rebirth and and why is there the Dhamma? Uh, what is the Buddha's position on life and life after death, etc. So, eventually, after a long conversation, long introduction, I got to the point where being a stream winner is uh, intentionally um, uh, um, actually encouraged uh, with such air urgency because the chances or the, not opportunities, but the possibilities rather of us getting such harsh, harsh karmic fruits landing on our shoulders is tremendous. Because we're talking about beginningless time, beginningless time. The mind cannot fathom such a thing. And chances are we have done more unwholesome things than wholesome. And uh, we've done some horrific things. So we're not just, the the, the teacher is not just trying to encourage you, the, the student, To go ahead and become a sotapanak just because of a status something, no, you're trying to cut back on the chances of you becoming an animal who will who's who's lined up to to walk into the slaughterhouse. To be a, a, a cow whose whose calf is being torn from her. In front of her eyes. And you're running running in the streets of Delhi or somewhere after the truck that has your baby in it. That's painful. And there's a lot worse situations, being reborn in hell or as a peta. That's why we have to have the urgency so that your kamma is extremely in, in, in front of you. It's in front of you. It's like you're driving on the freeway and there it is. The car in front of you. And if you speed a little bit too much, if they break, you're going to hit them. So you have to be very, very alert. So you have that urgency. But your urgency when it comes to the kamma has to be even more pronounced. Even more, because so long as the person is not attained to a level of stream winner, Sotapanna or Sotapatti, there's always that. The doors to the lower realms are always open. And that is why Lord Buddha continuously, for 45 years, taught his disciples to attain at the very least. He says this again and again and again. At the very least, please attain that stage. And the way to do that is through the Eightfold Path, Noble Eightfold Path. But how? Well, bring in the urgency. Okay. I have an urgency. I'm trying to bring it in. Okay, now what? Where is your attention during the day? Is it directed outwards? In changing, trying to change others or outside circumstances, the world, or... Checking in to see where my attention is, where sati is. Whether I am truly practicing wholesome kamma uh, versus unwholesome akusala kamma, and just focusing on the kusala. And practicing and practicing and practicing, listening or reading the dumb, uh, the suttas as much as possible, every millisecond of your life can be infused with the dhamma without you losing a snippet of experience or experiencing of your surroundings or your loved ones you can still bring in the dhamma in every single interaction and that is wholesome kamma right there because you have sati and sampajanya joined yes so um Hmm, uh, how, how, was, how was that?
2: Uh, Wonderful, as always, thank you.
0: Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, I guess there aren't. If you have any, uh, sometimes I understand some uh, might have some questions they wanna ask, but in a private, the setting, it's totally understandable. Please don't um, um, uh, don't shy away from sending an email, in that case, or a private message, and I will do my best to uh, answer. So uh, let us uh, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the triple gem bless you as always. And may... You tread softly, 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 in, uh, in your daily life, always pondering whether your actions, your kamma, are based on kusala or akusala. But going easy on yourself in that sense where you don't torture yourself, where you don't bring in the ill treatment instead of from the outside directed at you, not to do that to yourself either. To create that balance and see if you can be your own punna hmm. i'll see uh, you next week and may you all be well may you have a wonderful amazing new year suki